Oh, well, speaking of kiddos, you know, when my nieces, I've got five nieces, and when they come to visit, if it's not nice out like it is today, one of the things that they'll often ask to do is they want to play this video game that we have that's called Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time. It's a really great game. It's like $15 on Xbox if you've got Xbox. And you can have up to four people playing. So over the years, we have acquired four controllers so that we can have the full chaos of that. And the story of the game is just really simple. It's a universe that is made of love is being invaded by anti-love. And of course, the anti-love is violent and it's causing destruction and it's taking little bunnies captive. And so the mission is to go and to like free those cute little bunnies and defeat the anti-love, right? So pretty wholesome narrative. Aside from, I mean, you are shooting, I guess, some little neon lasers out of a gumball ship, but pretty wholesome. Um, when I looked at it, I found out the company was Canadian, and I was like, oh, yeah, of course it is. It's, like, so nice. <laughs> like, what a great story. But I thought, in the same way that that video game gives an imagination for the kids for, you know, like, what they're for in this life, love and liberation, and then what they're resisting, um, some of the Christian mystics have offered us some surprising pictures that might help do the same. Um, they can help us, I think, visualize how the divine might work in the universe, who we are in it, and maybe how prayer can fit into that. So there was this woman, she lived about a thousand years ago, and her name was Hildegard. Hildegard von Bingen, some of you have probably heard of her. And she left a gift of several pictures of how God might interact with the creation. Some of those are weirder than others, not all of them I like, but some of them I do. And so one of them that I think is kind of helpful, I'm going to talk about today, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how her imagination of the world informed a certain prayer that she penned, and then how that prayer might help us, like help serve as a new tool maybe in our own prayer belt. Because we've been in this sermon series where we're looking at just a few well-worn, well-trod prayers that people have used for hundreds of years to maybe broaden our palettes a little bit. So I first knew about Hildegard as a composer. I don't know, have any of you guys heard of her or heard of her music? Yeah, a few of you in here. Um, somewhere in my three semesters of music history, she was kind of tucked in there, and I didn't forget her, mainly because there aren't that many women um, in Western history music classes, right? You've got like her, Clara Schumann, and Amy Beach, and that's pretty much it prior to the 20th century. And I always thought that her choral music was just kind of haunting and mysterious and beautiful. And so I asked, I asked the sound team, I asked Brandon if they could play just a little of it. We won't listen to the whole thing, but so you get a little sense of Hildegard. little sense. It's something that you kind of feel like you'd want to listen to on like winter solstice or something, right? When it's really dark out. But Hildegard was given over to the Benedictines to become a nun when she was really young. Turned out she was quite gifted, very smart. She went on to start her own convent and she taught and she wrote a whole lot. Um, and she was interested in medicines and other sciences. And all of her life's work was animated by these visions that she started having as a young child. 
Now, I think the word vision can make something sound like really hyper-spiritual, but doesn't need to be. So I sometimes prefer to say that maybe she had pictures of what she thought God was like that her imagination conjured. So it's clear she was really intelligent, really creative, imaginative kid. And she was also a kid that was born, she was a little bit sickly when she was young, and she had some pain. And so I think she spent some time in her early years just sort of resting and thinking and trying to cope with this pain. So even before she learned to read and write, before she had any kind of theological education, she had this vivid imagining of what she thought God was like and how God interacted with the creation. And I think that helped her just cope with life and cope with her own health. And so the vision I want to share with you this morning is one of her earliest, and it's something she called the cosmic egg. I'm going to worry, it gets a little bit weird, but just kind of hang in there with me. So in her imagining... The universe, or what she called the cosmos, was in the shape of a giant egg. And then in her mind, this egg had several layers around it. And so the outermost part of this egg was made up of like a really bright fire. And then as it surrounded the egg and culminated at the top, it had this giant red fireball on the top. And then above that, she imagined three bright lights of like energy or fire that were like using their own energy to sort of hold all of this together in this egg universe. And I just want to like sit with that picture for a second. Because those of you who have been here, you might remember last summer we had a sermon series on the bird god of scripture. And if you weren't, I just want to do a quick, just little reminder here. Um, Genesis 1.1 says, when God began to create heaven and earth, And the earth was then welter and waste and darkness over the deep and God's breath hovering over the waters. God said, let there be light. And there was light. So in the Christian tradition, this breath of God that's hovering over the waters, that's widely accepted to be the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word used there is ruah. It means both breath and spirit. And so the idea is that the Spirit was present at the beginning as one aspect of God with the Creator and with the Logos. The Logos eventually, we think, incarnated into Jesus. But all of these are there. You might describe them as like three balls of energy or three sort of aspects of God in a vibrant dance, holding it all together. Right? So our Jewish friends don't imagine God as being a trinity of persons, but they imagine God as like a unity. And there's some strands of Judaism that imagine that this unity was hovering over the waters of Genesis like a dove, because the word that's translated there as hovering is often used for like a bird that's like hovering over its nest or over its babies. And so it has these connotations of brooding. And I put the, the quote that I loved from that, um, from that book about God being a bird here. Uh, Mark Wallace, who's a scholar, says, the glorious mother bird of creation tenderly brooding over the great egg of the cosmos in an attitude of sustained solicitation and affection. Right, so we talked about this image of God as a bird over the great egg. Now, Hildegard probably wouldn't have had any context for this like Jewish mystical picture. But I do wonder, maybe she was influenced as a little kid by stories about hearing about the Holy Spirit being like a dove in the New Testament. Like maybe that sparked her imagination. Who knows? But it's kind of interesting to me that she landed on this image of an egg universe because it's very much in line with some of the earlier mystics. Right, so she's got this outer layer of fire, and then underneath that she pictured another layer that was intensely cold and dark. 
And it seemed to her that like the energies of the fiery layer and the cold layer underneath were like interacting and affecting each other. Almost like, she probably wouldn't have said weather systems, but that's how I imagine it. Right, that these layers were quickened by sort of energy and storms and great winds that swirled and collided. And that sometimes the fireball would like flare up and these big arms of fire would come out and go through the egg. And other times they'd collide with the cold and the dark and they would sort of simmer down and diminish. Well, below those layers, right, that's a lot going on, she had a clearer layer. Uh, and this is most of the egg in her head. And she said there was also a big bright light of energy, but also several other balls of light that seemed to be the stars, maybe the planets, if she knew of planets. I don't know if she did, but the contents of the universe generally. And then further down, a little layer of water. And then below that, a sandy ball in the middle that she said was Earth and humanity, right? So it's almost like the atmosphere of the Earth and the Earth there in the center. All in all, it's not a terrible picture of the universe for a woman who lived a thousand years ago and who was really young when she came up with that. Um, the people of her time and place did believe that the world was round, so that wasn't like a revolutionary idea. But this idea of like just the earth, the atmosphere, the universe, and then sort of God holding it together, um, it's like kind of like, well, it's not too far off maybe in the Christian imagination. And this concept that she had, it wasn't a static one. Right? Everything was sort of dynamic in it. And the way she described it, like everything was sort of in motion and affecting the other parts. And so this fiery energy would come from the bright ball and it would like go onto the earth and it would cause rain and it would affect all these things. And then when that depleted, it would go and get more energy from the source that held it all. So I know that that vision is a little abstract and I promise I'll get to something a little more concrete here. But I just want to note here that it brings together this picture that she had, a couple of things that we've been looking at this year. So not just the egg universe as part of that sort of origin myth, but also this idea of God as fire, right? And fire sounds scary for the most part. I mean, I love our bonfire in the backyard, but fire, you know, our, our news is filled with lots of stories of wildfire and how untamed it can be, probably will be for the foreseeable future if we don't change a few things. Um, as I was thinking about Hildegard's vision and all these sort of like shoots of fire coming out, I was reminded of a story about Rachel's family. I asked her if I could share this. It predates my time knowing them. So we've been married almost nine years now. Um, Rachel's dad was one of seven kids, big Catholic family. Six of them are still with us. They grew up in St. Paul up in the Twin Cities. And so Rachel's grandpa, the guy who had all seven of those kids, um, he had bought some property when they were really young along the St. Croix River. And then he built I don't, a relatively rustic cabin. It's not rustic in the, it, like, it has um, electricity and he was a plumber, so it has plumbing, but he built it himself. And so there's some things that come along with having built it himself. And it's kind of built along this sort of sandy bank of the St. Croix. And so there's a beach of sorts that's lovely, but also means that it floods a lot because it's really close down to the beach of the river. Anyway, they all get together every July 4th um, and kind of have a great big family gathering. And so we usually, I shouldn't say always, but we've gone several times, mostly because it's a way to sort of capitalize on getting to see the entire extended family in one place. And so I think it was the first time I was there. We were down on the beach and along the river at night, there's you know tons of fireworks that are going off. There's a couple of small cities that have sort of Big things that they're shooting off, if you know the area, like Afton and is it clear, Sweetwater? No. 
Hudson, maybe Hudson. Still water was what I was thinking, sorry. And so there's big fireworks, but also a lot of the neighbors, like you can get big fireworks up there. And so people are shooting off these great big things. And I thought, man, this seems like such a Murr family thing. Why don't we just, you know, get some of those for here on the beach? And Rachel was like, no. She's like, that's been banned because of what happened a few years ago. And I was like, well, what happened a few years ago? <laughs> She's like, well, my dad and my uncles, there was this giant piece of plywood. And so they would get some of these really big fireworks and they'd set them off. But then one time they lit one of those big ones and it tipped over toward the house. And we're talking about the fireworks that continue to shoot off big things. And so it's just shooting off all over the beach. The whole family's there. There's kids. People are running. Uh, one of her aunts, she said, just like had two little kids at the time and like grabbed one, two, like footballs under her arms, running toward the house. Everybody was worried about whether the house was going to catch on fire or the woods behind it. Um, and she's like, you know, my aunt was pretty traumatized by all of this. And so now um, fireworks are banned at the cabin. <laughs> so shooting flames like that don't sound like a lot of fun, right? But the fire in the Bible is not like that. It's not like, ooh, dodging things. It's supposed to be like a fire of love and justice. That's mostly how it's used. So last January, we talked a little bit about God as consuming fire. And we talked about how in the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew people were trying to describe this divine attribute of God that is both destructive and creative and transformative, right? That the fire of God is more about not destroying, but like taking something and heating it up and remaking it into something better. So things that are unjust, oppressive systems, exploitative kingdoms, corporations, um, even family situations that are hard, work situations. The idea is praying that God will come in there and reshape them into something that's more useful and helpful and just. And so I think that's what Hildegard's picture is getting at with the way she looks at fire. And I say that from the way she wrote her, her prayer later on that we'll look at. There's just flames everywhere, right? And it's actually coming from the source or the origin or the creator who is holding this world enveloped in that fire of love and transformation and justice. And then in her imagination, there's something that's also opposing that, right? And it's cold and it's dark and it's sort of resisting some of that transformation and it causes this sort of storminess. And I find that a helpful picture, right? It's kind of fighting with love and it's a little bit like the video game. It's like anti-love kind of fighting in this universe of love. And so what Hildegard imagines here is that God is trying to constantly sort of break through to help remake the anti-love in the world. And so it's with that picture in mind of how Hildegard viewed her reality, I thought we could look at the prayer that she left that people have said for a thousand years. And I thought I might just pause a little between the stanzas to just maybe offer some ideas for how we can use her imagination to help us pray. So Holy Spirit comforting fire. Life of all creation, anointing the sick, cleansing body and soul, fill this body. Right, so here we do note that fire is comforting. She sees it as good news, like just us on the way. Something that I played with this week as I was praying was I just kind of paused after this portion, and I just kind of held my hands out, and I just pictured people I know who were sick or who were struggling in some way. And then as I just kind of pictured them one person after another, I just tried to imagine bands of love or like energy ribbons 
just sort of resting over them or around them. And then I pictured those same energy ribbons kind of coming and surrounding me, right? It's this cleansing body and soul. Now, given my bad experiences with purity culture, I actually have a little, like, that word cleansing is a little triggering for me, to be honest. But what I tried to picture it as is like strands of love that were coming near me and just helping to illuminate parts of me that keep me from being my best self. And I said, just like, show me, Lord, fill this body. And she says, Holy Spirit, sacred breath, fire of love, sweetest taste, beautiful aroma, fill this heart. And last week we talked about the Sarum prayer and how that prayer helps us engage our senses and locates God in our bodies. And this prayer is from about that same time period. It's maybe a hundred years later. And so here it's inviting us to imagine what love might taste like and what it might smell like. And so if you're in a time of meditation and you're holding people before God or the Spirit, you might just say, what does love smell like? Does it smell like damp grass and pine needles? Maybe like that invasive jasmine that grows along our alley that I love so much. I won't grow it because it's invasive, but I snip it off and put it in our living room every year. Maybe it smells like that. And then just let your mind wander to things that are good and they're lovely. And you could use it as an opportunity to just give thanks for those things, right? Fill this heart with gratitude. Holy Spirit filling the world from heights to the deep, raining from clouds, filling rivers and sea, fill this mind. And we remember in Hildegard's imagining, right, she's got this watery layer that's over the earth that she imagined raining or even dumping water into the earth. And so as I paused here, I just kind of pictured God's refreshing presence, just imagining what that would feel like, just seeping into my mind, seeping into others' minds. Um, it reminded me of when I was in Hong Kong. I loved Hong Kong. It was a great place to visit, but it's um, almost like oppressively hot and humid, like some of the American South is, I think, right now. And, you know, like five o'clock every day, it just dumps rain and it feels so good. And even if you're soaked, it's just like, oh, yeah, that's what I needed. Just kind of allowing that sort of same sense come over you and feel just soaked with God's presence and love. Um, it also reminded me a little bit of the verse that Silas read up here. It's kind of an odd verse, right, for like a nine-year-old to read. But that idea of it was like pouring oil over your head and dripping off to, you know, beards if you have them. I don't, neither did he, right? But that feeling, right, it's trying to evoke a sense in us. And you can just sort of sit in that if that's helpful to you. And then Holy Spirit, forgiving and giving, uniting strangers, reconciling enemies, seeking the loss, enfolding us together, fill those gathered here. And so here I just paused and I just pictured people that I know and care about who might be struggling or in conflict and just named them before the divine. And then just imagine those strands of love or fire encircling them. Not in a scary way, but in a way that's like God sees this and cares about this way. And I thought that's a good place if you would like to be able to pray for like coworkers or family members and friends. And then she ends it with Holy Spirit bringing light into dark places Igniting praise, greatest gift, our hope and encourager. Holy Spirit of Christ, I praise you. Amen. And here I just name before God the places where I'm feeling a little less hope. Um, you know, like climate change is a little like existentially scary to me right now. And just sort of inviting the Spirit to bring light to the corners of my mind, my heart, those places where I'm feeling scared or cynical and just saying, 
Come, be hope and encouraging. I praise you. Amen. All right, so that's just like a little way that you can use it. You don't have to use it the way that I did, but it's kind of just noticing as you pray through it, maybe something will stick out to you. Uh, maybe something will highlight in your mind, and you can just kind of sit there with it and pay attention to what it's doing with your senses and what it's doing with your imagination and see if the Holy Spirit doesn't do something that's maybe helpful to you in that space. So with that, we usually do a meditation or guided prayer, and I thought we would do a little guided meditation today where if you would like, you don't have to do this, but if you'd like, you can maybe practice this for just a moment. And so what I would invite you to do is you know, get a little comfortable, take a breath, and then just start by imagining yourself in a place that is beautiful and safe for you, wherever that is. And just kind of picture what is there, what's it smell like, what sounds are there, and let's just be present in that space, and then I'll invite you into something more. And so as you're sitting in this space in your mind, I invite you to just picture before you, you could even hold your hands out in your mind if you'd like, um, anything that you're bringing this week with you that is causing you a little distress. Maybe it's someone who's sick. Maybe it's a situation. And I invite you to just hold that and name that before the creator and then picture just like this sort of bands of energy and light around that space. And then, Spirit, I would just ask that any places in this situation, um, if our hearts need to be transformed, that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we would maybe have a different perspective on a situation, that you would mold us toward greater love and light, wisdom. We'd also ask that your love and that your energy would reach out into those situations to affect change. We thank you for being the source of all. We thank you for your transforming, comforting love. And we ask that you would use us to help bring more love into places where anti-love seems to be permeating. In your name we pray, amen.